Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Well, hey there, Impact Makers. Welcome back to another episode of the Impact Makers with Jennifer McClure podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer McClure, and today we'll be talking about how to put yourself out there into the world so you can create impact. We'll also talk about some of the opportunities that can come from exposing your ideas and opinions, and of course, the inevitable downsides that will likely occur when people criticize not only your work, but also you. And I have a very special guest with me today to discuss this topic, and she just happens to be my best friend, Laurie Rudeman. But Laurie is so much more to me than my friend. She's also a mentor, guide, champion, and supporter, not only to me and my businesses, but also to countless others that she's impacted in her journey. But Laurie and I would likely have never met if she hadn't started sharing her life online way back in 2004, because we didn't even live in the same city, and and we still don't today. But I'm one of those people that can say I met my best friend online, and that's kind of weird to say, but even weirder to say that she was writing about her life, her cats, and her work as an HR professional when I found her. It was probably in early 2008. I was researching various topics online that interested me, and I began finding people who were writing about their lives and their work experiences on something called blogs. I know, I was late to the party. One of the first bloggers I started following was a guy named Chris Dunn, and Laurie also mentions Chris as someone who's impacted her in this interview. Chris was one of the first HR leaders to start blogging, and he wrote a blog called The HR Capitalist. At one point, he linked out to a post on a blog called Team Building is for Suckers, and I followed the link, read a few posts, and subscribed. The blogger was anonymous, meaning that he or she didn't have their name attached to their writing, but the posts were hilarious, honest, and totally relatable to anyone who's ever worked with people in the workplace. I was hooked. Eventually, the blogger came out and shared her real name. It was Laurie Rudeman. She'd left her corporate job, moved across the country with her husband, and changed the name of her blog to Punk Rock HR. And that fit perfectly with the ethos that I had become familiar with through reading her daily, yeah, daily post. Back then, that was a thing. I didn't meet Laurie in person until about two years later, and the rest, as they say, is history. Much to my good fortune, she adopted me as her friend, and I can definitely say that my life has been changed as a result of her investment in me. And even though she now writes under her own name, laurierudeman.com, and she's retired punk rock HR, you'll never take the rebel out of the girl from the northwest side of Chicago. Laurie and I have traveled the world together working as speakers and business advisors and sometimes just as friends and travel buddies. Thanks, Ken, her husband. And whether we found ourselves by accident in the middle of a political protest in Istanbul or a terrorist threat at the Queen's Guard in London, yep, both of those things happened, or we're drinking champagne on a balcony in the Cayman Islands or hiking up a mountain in Spain, we've certainly had some great opportunities and have created great memories together which all have been made possible because 14 years ago, Laurie decided to share her life, her work, and her opinions online. But of course, it's not always easy for someone who puts themselves out there. And in our conversation today, we chat about why she started blogging, how she's developed as a writer over the years, and what she does every day to continue to improve. We also talk about what it's like to be online today as a woman with sometimes controversial opinions and how she deals with both the haters and those who appreciate her work. 
Even though I've known Lori for a long time, I learned a lot about her in this interview that I didn't know, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you. So let's get to it. Well, welcome Lori Rudiman to the Impact Makers podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be my first guest on this podcast because I want to interview an interesting people or interesting people that I either know or know of or find out about. And so for the first podcast, I said, who do I know that's interesting? And there are a lot of people that I know that are interesting. But if there were a Dos Equis kind of uh, most interesting woman in the world, I would think that would be you. So I'm honored to have you here today. And I'm interested in learning more about somebody that I think I know pretty well. well what do you think thanks. about that? <laughs> well, I'm a little scared and a little worried that I'm going to start to cry. So hopefully that won't happen, but let's give it a go. What well, do you want to totally know? my goal. I want to be the Barbara Walters of the podcast world. You, you come oh, on yeah. and you cry and I'll ask you what kind of tree you think you are. So <laughs> 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 for anybody who doesn't get that reference, just Google that. Yeah, we're old. I okay. get it. Yeah. <laughs> So really, again, you and I, have, we've, we're, we're good friends. We've traveled a lot. Uh, we've you know, been in and around the same space professionally for a few years. Um, but I want to kind of start with maybe some things I don't necessarily know about you. And I think that other people might be interested in as well. Kind of tell me about young Lori Rudiman, you know, like, well, what's she like? And, and what did she want to be when she grew up? Yeah, young Lori Rudiman was named Lauren. And so whenever I hear the word Lauren at Old Navy or Target because somebody's yelling at their kids, I always think it's my mom yelling at me. <laughs> so to this day, I whip around like, what? I'm not doing anything. <laughs> so I was a Lauren by birth, and my dad called me Lori. And that name kind of stuck through my childhood. And um, I was a fun kid born in a working class environment and truly working class. My mom was 21 when she had me and my parents were kind of hippies and they were together and they split and back and forth a couple of times. And very early on, I realized that um, family and home wasn't necessarily a permanent location. And around the age of seven, we moved in permanently in air quotes with my grandmother. And from that moment on, my grandmother really became a defining force in my life. And talk about a woman who was pragmatic, sensible, also working class. Uh, she, she had an opinion and she wasn't afraid to let people know. And I think it, it's largely because she was one of eight children and didn't have a lot growing up, um, was pregnant before she was married and kind of forced to marry the guy that uh, you know became the dad to my mother and her sisters and really unfortunate circumstances. And she wanted more for me and uh, really pushed me. I think, to be the best that I can be at all given times. So a uh, tough woman, hard woman, but someone who I admire and I love her and I miss her. So yeah, my grandmother is a real big factor in my early life. Well, what are some things, maybe two or three things that, that you took away from her as a person who's impacted your life that, that you think shaped who you are today? Yeah. I wouldn't say that my grandmother was cynical, but she was definitely, um, she didn't suffer fools. So if you were short of money, you get a second job. If you were unhappy at work, you get a hobby. If uh, somebody isn't treating you right, you're not a victim, you move on or you leave that person. So she always had a real quick answer to a situation. And you know, she is right about a lot of things in the world. If you don't like your job, join the club. 
On the other hand, <laughs> that's not necessarily the most enlightened approach to work. And so I can see where my early ideas of the world were formed. And I'm really glad for that sound, sensible, salt of the earth approach to work and life and passion and meaning. But I'm also glad that I had an opportunity to have an education and see other points of view because it balances pragmatism with a little hope and optimism. And I think, you know, everybody deserves to have a little hope and optimism in their life. And I try to keep myself open to the experience that I'll be happy as well. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and somewhere along the way, I, I don't know how early it started for you. Maybe you do. I kind of, when I think of Laurie, I think of you as a writer. You're a lot of things. You're a former HR professional. You're an entrepreneur. You're a speaker. You're, you're a lot of things. But to me, at the core, you're a writer. So where and when did, did that kind of start? Did you start writing in a diary or, or writing on sticky notes? Or how did you become a writer? My earliest memory of writing is writing a fan letter to Michael Jackson. (laughs) Like I I read at a very early age. I started reading when I was four years old and it was like on and off. Like one moment I wasn't reading and then at four I was reading and my mother didn't know what to do. So she sent me to kindergarten and I don't remember writing until that fan letter. But once I started writing to Michael Jackson, I just couldn't stop. And I wrote bad poetry and I wrote short stories and I typed up term papers for people in high school to earn money. So I was always writing. I was pretty good on the keyboard, as you uh, like to note. So I'm a fast typist, but writing was always central to who I was and how I identified myself to the world. And it turns out it's part of my DNA. My grandfather was a writer. And I only know this because he and my grandmother divorced after 25 years of marriage and he moved out and my grandmother discovered his poetry. And I thought, oh my God, that's amazing. Grandma, tell me about grandpa's poetry. And she said, it was horrible. (laughs) It was all about himself, which is all poetry really ever is. But for me, that was a moment that made me realize uh, writing, there's like a link to generations in my family. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, somewhere along the way, again, I, I know you as one of the very first HR bloggers, human resources bloggers out there, but but you were blogging on the internet back before most people even knew that was a thing. So, uh, and, and at one point I saw some things you shared through the Wayback Machine, but you were writing just like a daily diary on, on the internet. So, so what caused you to move from typing term papers and writing letters to celebrities to actually just sharing your thoughts on the internet, which was the time I assume was very young. And, and what was your plan for that when you decided to do that? Or did you have a plan? Yeah. You know, I wish I were more strategic with my life. I wish I could think strategically about what I want to do next. I mean, that's part of the blessing and the curse about the way that I live my life. But I discovered blogging because I had an ex-boyfriend who was blogging in 2004. And he sent me an email and said, look at my blog. I'm so proud of it. And I thought, oh my God, if this chump could do it, I can do it too. And in fact, I mostly started blogging out of spite. And I started writing about what I was doing and where I was traveling. And I worked in human resources at the time. And now looking back, I think to myself, I should have been fired. Had anybody known that I was cataloging what I was doing and what I was thinking on a daily basis, they would have booted me out of that company in a heartbeat. But instead, um, I was working and supporting the IT division of this large pharmaceutical organization. And they came to me and said, do you know anything about Facebook? And I said, no. 
but I'll find out, you know, and should we block it? I'm like, I don't know. Let me find out. And then when I discovered I could link blogging to Facebook, and blogging to Twitter, I was like, no, don't block it. I need access to it. <laughs> so here I am working in human resources, violating all sorts of terms and conditions that weren't even quite clarified at the time. But yeah, I was using it as a daily diary. And what I realized is I was developing an audience, unbeknownst to me, on Blogspot that also hated their job, saw the recession coming in 2004, 2005. They were really feeling disheartened, disengaged, and wanted a place to go. And they were finding me on the internet. It's just, it was an amazing phenomenon. And I was so incredibly lucky to be early because then when the recession hit and I ended up no longer having a job, I had something to do with my time where I actually had some expertise and thought maybe I can make a living out of this. And that's how blogging became a career opportunity for me. Yeah. Interesting. So I actually found you during that time and, and you were blogging anonymously while you were working in this big corporate yeah. job, or at least for most of that time. And I found your blog uh, because it was linked to by uh, another human resources blogger, Chris Dunn at the HR Capitalist. And he linked to one of your blogs, which at that time was called Team Building is for Suckers. And of course, I went there and, and read a couple of posts and I thought, this is interesting. And, you know, this, it was intriguing that this person was anonymous. And then um, somewhere along the way, you decided to actually put your name and your face on the blog and change the name of the blog eventually to Punk Rock HR. Um, so what was kind of the thought process? Were you, were you out of corporate America when you decided to out yourself or were you still working that corporate day job? No, I was out of corporate America. And I think about the stories that I told when I was anonymous. And I really took a lot of liberties and used people's identities without permission and named names. And I had some work to do. I actually had to go back and anonymize quite a few of those stories and delete them and clean up my act. And I I think a lot of people make this mistake when they're on the internet, especially when they're new to telling stories. They want to tell the whole story. And sometimes the truth benefits from a little bit of editing. And I certainly didn't have permission to tell other people's stories. The only thing I'm really empowered to do is talk about my own perspective. And so I learned pretty quickly that it was my responsibility as a storyteller to make sure that I wasn't telling other people's stories and exposing too much and really reflecting my own truth and not trying to tell somebody else's truth. So yeah, I had a lot of work to do. And I still think about that, Jennifer, to this day. Um, I live in fear of having a Wikipedia page. Because once you have a Wikipedia page, you can't control the narrative. People can edit it. People can add what they want. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that I've lived a complex life. I have a lot of relationships. I have a lot of friends and family who don't want their identities revealed and their stories told. A lot of people in my life who have been through painful experiences. And again, I'm going to start to cry. I just want to make sure that I pay enough um, respect to their experiences and don't reveal a story before they're ready to reveal it themselves. Does that make sense? It does. So you, you know, at some point decided to put your name and face out there. Was that, um, first of all, how did Punk Rock HR come into to the name of your blog? And then 
you know, were you then saying, well, I'm going to look at this as developing, quote, my personal brand. Uh, I'm going to see this as a path to another career, or this is the career that I want. What was the kind of thinking that you had at that time? Oh, my goodness. Punk rock HR. Let's, let's talk about that. Um, when I was younger, I wouldn't say that I was rebellious. I always had good grades and I worked, but I liked kind of 90s punk rock music, new wave music. And I would shave my head and wear Doc Martens and just had facial piercings and tattoos and just look like a stupid, dumb kid, right? Trying to rage against the machine. So I got a job in human resources and the condition of my employment was that I had to take out my facial piercings. (laughs) So that's kind of a weird thing to talk about in 1995. And they in the office would make fun of me behind my back. And I one time heard it. And one of my colleagues said, who does she think she is? Punk rock HR? Well, and yes. that really, yeah, I did. I did. I thought that. And that stuck with me. So I always held on to that story as a reason why I felt a little counterculture. I didn't belong in human resources. And I told my friend, Chris Dunn, that story. And he said, if you don't buy the domain Punk Rock HR today, I'm going to buy it and sell it back to you for $1,000 because you are going to want that domain. So I thought, all right, I'm going to buy that domain. And sure enough, he was right. Punk Rock HR was sticky. It's an interesting way of framing a brand. And I think it was my attempt, just my very first go in this world of saying who I am and what I believe in, which is I believe in looking at work vocation, passion, purpose, meaning in a different way. I don't necessarily trust corporate America. And I wanted to talk about it and I wanted to express myself. And yes, I did think it was my first attempt at creating a personal brand and I had hoped to monetize it. And I did. Ultimately, what did that do for you? I mean, you know, over the years, you were very well known, probably one of the most, if not the most well-known blogger in the human resources space. And ultimately, uh, even more, you know, the workplace space, yeah. employment space, whether career advice or, or what it's like to work. And, and, and you know, I love one of your takes is that, you know, passion working and your passion is definitely stupid, or at least that's your opinion. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's stupid. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're much more way. eloquent than yeah. I am, but you know, you, you built this into a, kind of a career advice blog, a workplace blog, a human resources blog. And then ultimately, you killed it. Um, you know, yeah, that that yeah, seems to be a theme over the years with you. You build something up to being like super successful um, and that it's doing great things for you. I mean, it, it generated speaking opportunities and sponsorship opportunities and other paid writing opportunities. And then you one day said, I'm done with Punk Rock HR. And you transitioned over to a new URL called The Cynical Girl. Yeah. What, what caused you to to kill something kind of at the height of its success? Wow, it makes me sound weird and neurotic, doesn't it? <laughs> no, it does not. It makes you sound very counterculture and, and yeah. punk yeah. rock age. I hope so. I hope so. Well, you know, I generally mistrust power and success. I think like, oh, something's successful. How did it get there? Something must be wrong with it. And I want to go on to the next thing. I want to look at the new things in this world. And so when I started realizing great success with Punk Rock HR, and I did, I mean, I had a lot of speaking opportunities. I've been all over the world. I thought to myself a couple things. Number one, um, eh, this isn't going to last forever. 
I got to get ahead of the curve, right? I mean, that's just what entrepreneurs do. They're always looking for an exit and they're always looking for the next step in their business evolution. And then I also thought to myself, I'm in my 30s. How punk rock can I possibly be, right? I need to evolve the brand and I need to be honest with myself. I have a mortgage. I drive a Volvo. It couldn't be more suburban, right? You know, I, I have cats. I'm just a normal lady at this point. I'm not really as punk rock as I think I am. So I need something that's more representative of where I am today and where I want to go in the next few years. And so that's when the cynical girl kind of came in my mind as um, a persona, an avatar to express myself a little differently and with a more mature voice. And again, that only had a lifespan of a couple of years. And then I moved on to writing under my own name. And that kind of... Um, career ladder that I built for myself is probably unique. I'm not sure anybody else can do that for themselves, but it gave me a way to evolve without shaving my head or piercing my face. It gave me a way to present new ideas. And it also opened up an audience because an audience for punk rock HR is a very small pool. An audience for the cynical girl was a little bit bigger and an audience for Lori Rudiman is, you know, uh, ever growing. It's limitless. But to make that jump from punk rock HR to Lori Rudiman would have been too big. I needed an intermediary there. So that was the cynical girl. But yeah, so it's just part of a, a narrative, a story. It's a construct to take people along with my journey. But yeah, but you're right. I do kill things when they're successful. And I sometimes want to kill my own brand, Lori Rudiman. But you can't do that. You can't kill your own name. So I just uh, try new things under my name now, like Madonna. There you go. Yeah. Well, when I think of, you know, and I've said been a reader of yours for probably 10 years now. And one thing that I really like about your blogs under all the variations from from Anonymous to Punk Rock HR to The Cynical Girl to now Laurie Rudiman is, number one, great writing. Um, Number two, you take a, a, you have a point of view and you write really well about that point of view. Your point of view is often uh, contrarian, if, if maybe there's a better word for that. But, you know, you'll take a stance on something that is maybe is your actual viewpoint. So you're not doing the, the opposite just to be opposite. But you write so well about it that even though I disagree, and I always tell people we're really good friends, but we probably couldn't be more different in um, a lot of things. But I appreciate having a place to go where someone shares a differing viewpoint than me, but it's written well enough that it causes me to think, hmm, I need to also solidify my own point of view. So if I disagree with that, can I articulate it well enough um, in a similar way as Laurie did, or, or maybe someone else who is a great writer did, that I could write about my own point of view if I were to do that in the same way. And if I can't, then maybe I need to do more research or more reading or doing something or, or challenge my point of view. Maybe even, maybe I could be wrong. So I think there's a talent and a skill to writing well. And you, I always say you're the master of like the 300, 400 word post and, and, and it being really impactful. So there's a talent there to writing well, but First of all, have you done something to develop your craft of writing over the years? And then second, do you think anybody can write? Oh, those are really good questions. Yeah, I love them. Well, I write every day. Every day. I'm on my stinking laptop 
<laughs> plugged in, programmed in, and I'm really trying, whether I'm writing about the world of work or the world of human resources, or even about my cats, I make a dedicated effort to spend some time working on my craft. I have also invested in tools to help me be a better writer. Much of what you see on the internet from me is often a first draft, but my first drafts are informed. And so I use two tools that might be helpful for your audience. I use Grammarly, which is something that you can uh, subscribe to on a monthly basis that helps me uh, make sure I'm not misusing semicolons or you know, uh, using words that don't make any sense. And I also use a tool, and I, I want to make sure I get the name of it right. It's called Pro Writing Aid. And when I do edit myself, that's an excellent tool to make sure that the flow is right, the style makes sense, that I'm not overusing words. And those two tools help me to be a better writer. But tools are just tools. I have to do the work on a daily basis. So I sit down every day and do a minimum of 500 words. And sometimes it makes it onto the blog and sometimes it doesn't, but I definitely put a lot of effort into it. And I think you asked about that contrarian point of view, mm -hmm. something that I've developed over the years. And for the cynical me, girl. The cynical girl, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for me, I mean, I like going on the internet and writing things or reading things rather that affirm my point of view. But like you, I want to be challenged and I want to think about things differently in the world. And I recognize pretty early on that not a lot of people do that within the HR community. There's a ton of stuff in there about like happiness and achieving your personal potential, meaning, um, being a leader that all follow the same footprint. And nobody, especially early, was challenging the status quo. People weren't talking about feminism. People weren't talking about uh, LGBT rights. People weren't talking about intersectionality or the Me Too movement. And I have been talking about those issues for over a decade. And so for me, it was important, um, all the things that I believe in, my values, my behaviors, my principles, to bring that to the world of human resources and to try to change the conversation to reflect a bigger and broader perspective. So that um, I'm glad you have seen that and recognize that in my writing. That means I've been successful. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it points, I'm sure anybody who puts themselves out there in any way, uh, but certainly somebody who writes and, and has a popular place online that they write and who has a contrarian viewpoint or who talks about things that are in the news and establishes an opinion and, and backs that up. There's got to be, you know, people that agree with you that say, oh, you said exactly what I wanted to say. Thank you very much. But there's Sometimes maybe a lot of people or maybe a few people that, that disagree with you and either choose to let you know about that personally or they comment on the blog or they share on social media. Um, how do you handle some of that reaction, both positive and negative, as somebody who writes prolifically probably also gets prolific feedback? Yeah, I'm going to take a deep breath <laughs> when we talk about feedback. Holy Holy smokes, there isn't a day that goes by when someone doesn't tell me how wrong I am or how I'm dumb or how I've made a mistake or how I just don't get it. And some days I hear that more than others. I mean, it's just crazy how quick people are to judge you and say mean things. I would say over the past 14 years, I've developed a bit of a callus, and so I'm better at hearing 
the negative feedback. But if you're on the internet and you're a woman, it's a hard place to be. And so I would advise people who are considering writing and considering developing a career and a brand on the internet to go slowly and to even have a separate email account for feedback and only go into that comment account when you're prepared and you're ready and you're mentally set to delve into that world because it can get a little dark. I mean, admittedly, when people are telling you that you suck, it's hard to hear. So take it in doses and also think about Brene Brown. She's someone who really inspires me and she has written, have a strong back and a soft front. And so I try to remember who I am, my core value, what makes me go to sleep and feel good about myself at night. And then when I read that feedback, I'm like, oh, I feel sorry for those people or I understand their point of view. I have empathy, I have compassion and I can put it in perspective but yeah, anybody who's out there taking a risk, people are going to try to knock you down, but do it anyway. Why not? Yeah, I read, I listened to an interview with Brene Brown at one point and, and made a note. She said to uh, what she does and what she recommends is that you take a sticky note and you write down the names of all the people that matter to you. Oh, and that, I love that. That those are the people that you listen to feedback from. Yeah. And everyone else, I mean, you might take some of it to inform you, but in terms of how it makes you feel about you and yourself, you need to know whose feedback really matters. Oh, that's such good advice. Um, so that that is something interesting. So kind of along those lines, like you said, people need to consider a lot of things before they start putting their thoughts out there online. And and I, I know a lot of people will reach out to me, and I'm sure they do to you as well. And they're like, I want to start really developing my brand. I want to be known more as an expert in my field. I want to move up in my career, a whole lot of things. I want to have more of an impact in the world. And you know, what would you suggest that I do? And usually... Most often, the first thing I'll suggest they do is to start to write, whether that is to blog or to post on LinkedIn or to write for their professional association, because that is a way to get attention and become known for your expertise. But I think that begs the question of, should everyone write? What do you think? Yeah, no, I don't think everybody should write. I think everybody should create. I think everybody should think. Wait, let me back up. I think everybody should do whatever they want to do, but just because you do something doesn't mean you have to publish it. So for me, I think long and hard before I publish things. And I know it may not seem that way. If you're a fan of my blog, it may seem like I just write things and hit publish and I'm like, woohoo, wheels off, you know, let's do this. That's not how this works. I write and I look, you know, it's my first draft. I'm not going to spend a tremendous amount of time with it, but I think, am I going to hurt anybody? And am I, am I going to hurt myself? Those two questions have saved me a tremendous amount of heartache. And sometimes I get it wrong and I publish things and I've hurt people or I've hurt myself and exposed too much. Then I take it off the internet and, you know, hopefully it doesn't come back to haunt me. But just stopping and checking yourself before you hit that publish button, whether it's a tweet, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's a photo on Instagram, whatever it is, taking that breath, pausing and being mindful about what you're about to do is probably the best advice I can offer to anybody. And you know, I believe advice is nostalgia. We've talked about this before. That's a very old quote. So I look back on my life and I, you know, I'm telling people what to do. And it's really just me looking back on my own life, giving advice to myself. But hopefully people can learn from what I'm telling them. And I really believe that being mindful and taking a breath before you put anything out on the internet 
is just common sense. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't always do it, but it's helpful. And I hope people follow, follow that recommendation. Sure. Yeah. Well, as, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, blogging for you has created a lot of opportunities um, that maybe you didn't see in the beginning when you, you started down that path. Um, you know, it's, it's translated into speaking in front of huge audiences all over the world uh, to major Fortune 100 companies. And, you know, it's done a lot of things for you. And, and it's, it's given you, I think, ideas to do other things like start new things. I know I, I wrote down a few things that um, I can remember that you started. You, you were certainly one of the first HR bloggers that was, that was pretty well known out there. Um, and then your blog got listed, you know, as a top career and advice blog by some major publications. So it became more than just about HR. You created a social network for HR professionals in the very beginning um, and then sold that. Um, you started a new media company. And you held an online career summit before everybody and their grandmother were holding career summits. You killed that. Um, started <laughs> influencer programs with some major brands that um, you know then reached out to people, other bloggers. You helped them understand how they could use bloggers and people of influence in the space to help build their brand. Um, you founded a tech company last year, and now you're kicking off something called HR Books, where you're encouraging HR people to read. So, you know, from young Lori to writer Lori, um, did you kind of see yourself as this entrepreneur, this, this starter of new things, the, the go first kind of person? No, not at all. I saw myself as um, in my dreams. I wanted to be a weather girl. I wanted to do the weather. I believe this. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I love the idea of being in front of a green screen and just giving people good news about sunshine. That sounds amazing to me. I would love to do that still. So if anybody can make that happen for me, just like a day in a weather studio, I would be forever grateful. But no, I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur. And it's not until recently that I really understood that what I was doing was entrepreneurial. I think part of it is my age group. I'm a middle-aged woman, right? I wouldn't necessarily put the moniker of entrepreneur on me. When I think of entrepreneurs, I think of 27-year-old white boys, right? (laughs) You know, and hoodies and drinking beer and playing ping pong. But I am an entrepreneur. And I think so many women, especially within human resources, are also entrepreneurs. How many women, Jennifer, do you and I know who work in HR, but also help to support the family business? Maybe they do the books, Maybe they do marketing. Maybe they're working at their parents' restaurant still. Many of us are entrepreneurs and we're afraid to use that label. So um, I'm using it more and more. It still feels a little foreign, but yeah, thank you for recognizing that in me. And it's funny how people recognize our abilities and our competencies in us before we see it in ourselves. And I think I'm certainly a case of that. Even though I've had really great life experiences, I've been around the world, I've been to Cuba before Americans can go to Cuba. I've been to New Zealand. I've been to you know, India. I've been, I've been everywhere. I've been to Turkey with you a couple of times. We've been to Barcelona. We've just had all of these amazing experiences. But I think up until recently, had anybody asked me to describe myself, I would have just said, eh, I'm a failed HR lady. Even with all of that, I'm working on that. And uh, I hope in my journey, I inspire other people to see themselves differently. If I can do that for like one or two people, that would be really great. 
Well, I think that the inspiration that that uh, comes from what you've done, because you do write about these things, you know, you write about what you're starting and why you're killing it or what's not working or what is working. Like with your tech company, you kind of took people on the journey that you were making a pivot and, and becoming a CEO of a tech company. And then you wrote about what was working and not working. And then you yeah. wrote about why you put that on pause. So part of... Um, Again, I think the value that you provide is that you share those experiences with people so they can learn from it and either do or not do what you've done or challenge themselves. So, you know, what have you learned by sharing so much of your successes and failures out there with people? Yeah, I've learned that it's okay to go first. It won't kill you. And I think growing up, I was always afraid to go first. Again, I'm pragmatic. I want to see how things are done. But being first and being only and being different is amazing. And it's a real honor to be able to take people on that journey. And being first, only, and different in a lot of ways has been my saving grace. I was the first in my family to go to college. And I was only able to do it because I took on a tremendous amount of student loan debt. But I did it. And then I was able to help other members of my family navigate that whole situation of applying for student loans and really financing their debt and all that kind of stuff. So I took them on that journey. So I've been first only and different for a very long period of time. And I was first only and different in HR when I had a blog. And I was first only and different in a lot of ways traveling around the world when I worked in HR and doing some of the work that I did at major at a major pharmaceutical company. So this has always been an important theme in my life. And again, I think when I was younger, I thought it might kill me, but it hasn't killed me. It's been just an amazing experience. And being first, only, and different helped to introduce me to you. I mean, that's the whole reason why we met, because we both took a risk very early on on the internet. We're like, this thing is okay. And we went down to a conference and we hung out and man, I fell in love with you in a heartbeat. I'm like, this is a woman who is different. You are thoughtful, you are faith-based, you're interesting, you've got principles, but you also take risks in your own way. And I needed more of that in my life. And I told you, we are going to be friends. And you're like, I don't know about this. <laughs> I just wanted out, to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was a little aggressive. But it, a, it turns out I was right. You know, you, we are friends. And also um, being first only indifferent in the world of the internet and, and in the world of blogging has meant that we've connected in real life. And I think my life has been better for it. So hopefully I am inspiring people to take a risk and not everybody can take a risk, right? Not everybody feels comfortable doing it. Maybe they can live vicariously through me, or maybe they can take a risk in a smaller way. And also I'm trying to demystify failure. That's the other thing that's really important to me. So when I fail, for the most part, I try to talk about it and break some taboos and um, show people that they can survive. If I can survive it, anybody can do it. I try to avoid pain all the time, all day long. And the fact that I talk about my existential pain is a real um, strange mind space to be in. But yeah, I try to talk about it because hopefully there's a point and a purpose to some of the suffering and some of the uh, the hurdles and the obstacles that I've been through. So yeah. Well, you mentioned there like, you know, being intentional about selecting people to be in relationship with because a lot of people, quote, think they know you yeah. uh, because you do share so much of yourself. So I think anyone who is in that kind of um, 
public space that a lot of people do want to know you. They want you to mentor them or they want to be your friend or they want to partner with you on business. So as someone I'm sure who gets a lot of that um, interest, you seem to have kind of a strategy around relationships and being intentional about the, the levels or types of people that you build relationships with more than just, um, you know, reading your content and learning from each other, et cetera. But what, what kind of is your strategy for who you choose to have relationships with? I would love to think that there was a dedicated strategy. It's more along the lines of the fact that I know myself and I know what I'm capable of doing and I know what I'm capable of giving. And so very often I've had to have conversations with men and women to say, you know, I see where this is going. I see that you want more of me than I can give. And it's me. It truly is me. I'm unable and incapable of doing it. And some people are grateful that I'm honest and upfront about it. And in some cases, it breaks a lot of hearts. And I I often buffer this by saying, thank you for trying. You know, like I'm just, it's me. I'm incapable of having another friend right now or I'm not in a good mental space. But for me, it's what I would want someone to do for me if I were reaching out and they couldn't give me what I needed. So I'm really just giving to the world what I want for myself and hoping that it repays itself down the road. But there's nothing worse than trying to be someone's friend and you realize that you were just friends with an avatar or you were just friends with uh, an online persona. So I try to be very upfront and direct. Like, this is what I can give you. This is what I'm capable of and take it or leave it. And it's difficult and it requires a lot of courageous conversations, but I'm trying to model good behavior and hopefully it pays dividends down the road for some people. So, yeah. Well, in, in terms of influencing people, who has been your best teacher? Oh, I've had a lot of really, really wonderful teachers and friends and people in my life. Sometimes I give an example of a woman that I worked with who had a really good work-life balance, and I'll just briefly mention her. She didn't like working in human resources, but she had a lot of hobbies and a lot of other interests, and I would see this struggle that she had at work. Like She wasn't really super happy, but she was very high up and very well respected. And I would ask her, like, you clearly don't like what you're doing, but you're getting it done. What keeps you sane? And she said, well, I like to redecorate my home. I like to travel. And so I try to keep my job in perspective. And I focus on hobbies and I focus on my family. And that was an early pragmatic lesson for me because, you know, the world of human resources will break your heart. And if you put your whole self into this job without a lot of balance, you're bound to be miserable. So the way I think people can navigate through the world of human resources is to have a hobby, to have something else in their life. And when times are tough at work, look elsewhere. Travel, see the world, go to the movies, knit, sew, quilt. I don't care what it is, but have something other than work as part of your core identity. So yeah. That's good advice. Speaking of advice, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, we talked about my grandmother early on. And my grandmother, uh, she's so smart, so great. She really taught me to say no. And it was the single biggest thing that protected me in a lot of situations. So she had very candid conversations about saying no to adults who don't have my best interest at heart. 
She told me to say no when my gut told me to say no. We practice saying it. She didn't like it when I said no to her, by the way, you know, <laughs> like any parent or any authority figure, they almost regret teaching you a life lesson, right? But um, she taught me to say no early and often, and it's been a good protective measure. So yeah. Great advice from the grandmother. Oh, so smart. These yeah. older women, right? The wisdom to be shared. That's right. So where can people find you on the internet these days? And if they can't spell Rudiman, how do they figure that out? Well, Rudiman is so easy to spell. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, um, I have a little hack out there. People can Google work life cats or just go to worklifecats.com because what do I talk about in this world? I talk about work. I talk about my life. And by the way, we went through a whole podcast without talking about my cats. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. So work life cats is where they can find me or HR books or they can Google. I hate HR. They'll find me there. <laughs> but they can also find you at laurierudeman.com. Oh, yes, they can. Laurie they Rudiman. can find you on Twitter at L. Rudiman. L. Rudiman, correct. Um, and, of course, you're on LinkedIn with everybody else in the world, right? Yes, so you're out there. Instagram. And we'll Wait, certainly I'm link up on, to all these things in the show notes, by the way. <laughs> I have to say, I'm not on Snap. Should I be on Snap? Should I go? We should probably do a whole podcast about that. I oh, know. my God. I don't have the time in my day. But, yeah, I'm not on Snap. But everywhere else, you can find me. That's so right. what is next for Laurie Rudiman? Oh, um, I mean, you know, stupid stuff, uh, of course, but I'm going to South Africa. I'm going to speak in Johannesburg later in the year, and I'm going to take a trip to Cape Town and maybe do a safari. So I am super excited. And again, it's part of my philosophy that if you have to work in this world, you might as well do something fun, right? And have some balance. So I'm going to speak to human resources and recruiting professionals in Johannesburg and then I'm going to take a few days and see the country. So I'm excited. Who would have thought that anonymous blogging about your career in human resources would eventually turn into opportunities to speak in another country at a large conference to HR professionals? Oh, my God. I really don't understand it, but I am eternally grateful for it. <laughs> well, and well-deserved. And I believe you'll also be found at hrbooks.com, which is the next Laurie Rudiman project, right? Correct. Correct. So, well, thank you so much for sharing with me today, Laurie. I learned something new as somebody that's known you for a long time. So I appreciate you. you sharing more of yourself and I will continue to personally follow you and watch what you do and learn from you as I'm sure other people will as well. Jennifer, thanks for your podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. And you know, I love you. Thank you. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.